the best new idea I've come across. It is a market-based, voluntary, bottom-up mechanism to resolve uh, individual qualms around sustainability relating to ownership of Bitcoin. Hello there, how are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into the interview today, I have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. And even though they've been with me for a year, I have not sold a single sat with Gemini. I'm only buying. I'm a hodler. But I have been buying Bitcoin with them. Not only have I been buying the dips through Gemini, but I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. And I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Next up, it's sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now, we are over halfway through the season. Liverpool have just picked up their first trophy. Tottenham are struggling as ever. This season is going as planned. But how's it going to finish? Do you know how it's going to finish? Will Liverpool win the title? Will they snatch it away from City? Who's going to win the league? Who's going to win the Champions League? Who knows? Well, anyway, if you want to take a bet, sportsbet.io has got you covered. And not just with football. They cover tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even cover esports. And for new customers, there's always a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions. That is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Next up, it's level. Now, as the world migrates from traditional walled garden financial rails to Bitcoin, Level has rebuilt its Bitcoin trading app to become the first full suite Bitcoin banking app. The Bitcoin revolution isn't just about investing dollars. It's about replacing them. So while other apps help you to buy Bitcoin, the Level app lets you use your Bitcoin for daily life. You can get paid in Bitcoin, you can spend Bitcoin anywhere, and you can even earn Bitcoin rewards. All of this is alongside a traditional feared account, so you can manage your Bitcoin alongside your traditional currencies. Now, Level are reserving 500 beta slots for WBD listeners ready to go all in and bank in Bitcoin. If you want to find out more, head over to level.co forward slash WBD, which is lvl.co forward slash WBD for info and early access. Also, today we have Casa. Whether you've just bought your first SaaS or you're a Bitcoin pro, you need to protect your investment. And the only person who should be in charge of your Bitcoin and your financial freedom is you. And securing your Bitcoin does not have to be difficult because Casa makes it so easy. Getting started is super simple. You just download the app, create an account, and enjoy a 30-day free trial. And if you need some assistance, it is just a click or phone call away. Casa has best-in-class customer support and free online resources to support you. Now, 12 Canada recently showed us the importance of self-custody and taking control of your money when they froze protesters' finances with no warning. 
take your financial freedom into your hands by self-custodying your Bitcoin so it can never be frozen without your consent. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Good to see you again, Troy. Good to see you again. Good to see you again, Nick. Hello, Peter. Uh, the show we did, it uh, stirred a few people up. You've been uh, busy on Twitter, replying to every single person I see. You've been busy? <laughs> I've been very busy. I, I can't believe the the response that show got. Um, there was some negative response. Of course. Which we expected. I didn't expect the overwhelming positive response that I've gotten uh, in the DMs. People wanting to work with me, people wanting to just talk further about the idea. It's been, it's been insane. How many people reached out to you? It's in the hundreds. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I think there was a sort of pent up uh, desire for a kind of narrative that was already out there. But for some reason, I think a pleb coming out of the woodwork <laughs> with this idea uh, inspired other plebs who were also in the woodwork and who wanted some other narrative other than just there is no climate emergency on the one hand or Bitcoin sucks on the other hand. And um, people people latched onto it as a point of hope. It was a, it was a very popular show. Uh, the comments were very good. When you measure it in terms of downloads, you, the show far outperformed. There's, there's like usually a correlation between how many followers you got on Twitter and uh, and how well the show does. A Nick Carter show is an, is uh, an above average show. Um, That's why you keep dragging me on here. Dragging you on. <laughs> Summon my ass. You know, I've never traveled for a podcast before. Well, we're, uh, we're worth it now. Yeah, you guys are special. Yeah, we're, <laughs> but, uh, and thank you for the validation with Troy. Nick um, said I should talk to you. But uh, the show did very well. Um, far outperformed what I would say is a level of uh, the, the standard correlation. And the comments were almost universally very positive which was super interesting because i expected a 50 50 so when i tweet about climate change because i believe it is an issue caused by humans uh i get people who agree it's about 50 people uh, 50 50 people you know half agree and half think i'm an idiot and i expected a, some positives and some negatives but it was almost universally positive which was interesting well let's get those negative ones today let's do it we we can cover that. We can cover that. Well, what what did you get, negative wise? Oh, you know, I I mean, honestly, I got less negative response than I um, than I had before. Like, for instance, when uh, Nick wrote up a piece about uh, about the idea I had with with Andrew, and uh, I got some pretty intense, you know, the sta the standard uh, maxi attack. Which I, I see you got the other night on Twitter too. You know, the, there's a the most there's like balanced a, tweet thread I could possibly write. <laughs> the, uh, the, the there's a stock of I, I don't know uh, homophobic insults that <laughs> come your way. I won't repeat them, but yeah, I mean I got a few of those, but a surprisingly small number, really. Okay, well, listen, just as a starting point. Um, there will be people listening to this who may not have listened to the first show. Um, there's been a big increase of listeners over the last couple of weeks. So we don't know why. 
Um, I would recommend anyone listening, if you didn't listen to the first Troy show, it's probably best to go and listen to that before this. It was a few weeks ago. But if they don't, just do a very quick reminder. Okay. The quickest reminder of the model possible. Quickest as I can. Okay, first part of our show was really dismissing a bunch of FUD and where I was just playing like a lesser version of Nick Carter. And then uh, we talked about kind of the challenge of meeting the climate targets that we've set for ourselves and what that will take. And uh, we need to, in order to meet the targets we've set, we need to drastically and very quickly cut CO2 emissions. And the only way to do that that's humane and decent is uh, to create a tremendous amount of new energy generation with less carbon intensive uh, forms of energy production, like, like wind and solar and nuclear. And that needs to happen very fast. Like we need, a, we need to electrify the economy, uh, switch over fossil fuel burning parts of the economy, like internal combustion engines and heaters, to um, electrical motors, electrical heaters. And that will mean that we need to triple or quadruple energy production, electricity production. And if that's done in a sustainable way, that means a tremendous build out, which requires a lot of flexible load to handle the intermittency of those sources. And Bitcoin is the best flexible load there is, Bitcoin mining. It helps to monetize that build out and get us over the hump into that renewable transition. That was one part of the show. The remainder was this uh, summary of this paper that I wrote with uh, Andrew Bailey which explains how you can hold Bitcoin uh, in a way that erases your carbon footprint. And you do that by mining in proportion to your holdings. If you hold 1% of all Bitcoin, say, you just do 1% of all uh, Bitcoin mining in a sustainable way, or you buy 1% of, of all hash rate that's sustainably produced. And you know, argue, we argue that uh, because Bitcoin supply is algorithmically limited, it's 6.25 uh, Bitcoin per block or 900 Bitcoin a day. If you mine your proportion of all mining as you hold of all Bitcoin, you're literally taking Bitcoin off the table for every other miner. Like if you own 1% of Bitcoin and you do 1% of mining, you are mining nine Bitcoin a day. That leaves 891 for the rest of all miners in the world. And if yours are not producing carbon, if you're mining those nine are not producing carbon, the rest of the network is not really your concern. You've mined your part of the, you've mined the same incentive that you've given to the network, you've mined it. And so then these two ideas kind of played together. I'll wrap this up <laughs> so that Actually, if a lot of people um, who hold Bitcoin decide to mine their incentive, mine the same percentage of all mining as they own of all Bitcoin, that would be a tremendous influx of capital into, into Bitcoin and into green mining. Into Bitcoin because we have whatever, $16 trillion in this country that's locked in ESG frameworks. And we think we can unlock that capital and that will push number way up. And uh, and if people are buying green hash rate, that in that provides a a, a 
an incentive to do green mining, which then provides the incentive to build out renewable power. So yeah, that's how Bitcoin mining saves the environment. Yeah, it was the second part that I thought was more interesting, trying to incentivize people to actually start mining their percentage. I think that, that becomes a bit tricky. Um, but if you can incentivize people who have budgets to invest into uh, ESG projects, despite the fact there are people who hate ESG and think it's propaganda, um, it's not going away. If you can incentivize people to put money into these projects, uh, you can actually bring p new people into the network who also can earn Bitcoin by offsetting, which is this strange reward mechanism. That that was the bit that really, when it clicked for me. Yeah, actually, that's part of why people responded to this show is because of you. <laughs> because um, It's because of you. It's because, well, it was both of us, right? I have this idea that I've had for seven months and that I couldn't communicate. Nick got it. Nick helped get it out there. But it's a hard idea, actually, to grasp. And a lot of people were in the same position you were listening to the show. And when the light bulb came on for you, it was just an incredible moment. And it was a moment for both of us because for me, it was like, ah, I'm understood. And for you, it was like, ah, I understand. It's exciting. Yeah, well, you didn't tell me the, the good bit when we went for dinner. I wanted that moment. Yeah. <laughs> one, <laughs> one of that moment of surprise. So, so Nick, you, um, you recommended that I talk to Troy and you said he's uh, somebody you should be listened to. Uh, you've also spent a lot of time looking at mining you produced that epic report with NYDIG. You also say Bitcoin mining is the most misunderstood industry. What is it about this that grabbed you as somebody who's looked into mining a lot? Well, I'm in the twilight of my Bitcoin career, right? <laughs> so what is it that you do when you're sort of nearing retirement? You <laughs> elevate you know, the younger, better voices. So that's, <laughs> that's what I'm doing here. So basically, Troy and Andrew's idea uh, is like the best new idea I've come across in in the conjunction of sort of like Bitcoin and sustainability space. Um, it is a market-based voluntary bottom-up mechanism to resolve uh, individual qualms around sustainability relating to ownership of Bitcoin. It's non-coercive. It doesn't require any convoluted uh, tracing of Bitcoins or imposing a moral accounting on top of individual units of Bitcoin, which is something I constantly see from all over the place regarding green Bitcoins and blood Bitcoins, which is logistically a nightmare and I don't think will work. Uh, so I think this mechanism is the best one to um, achieve, you know, moral sort of um, moral safety for people who want to own Bitcoin but are also concerned about the sustainability of Bitcoin. And uh, yeah, so it's the best, best one I've seen. And I thought the paper was excellent. I think it's something that's very pragmatic too. Like it can actually be very easily implemented. Uh, you don't have to personally mine. You can just buy equity in a sustainable miner, of which there are many. And so I wanted to sort of lend my support to the idea uh, because I hope that in the marketplace of ideas regarding making Bitcoin sustainable, this one outcompetes the other bad ideas. Um, and so I think we have a chance to do that. And one of the things I left thinking is there there's a potential for somebody to monetize this and create in businesses that support this. Um, as somebody who's just raised a quarter of a billion dollar fund, I actually think you 
people could invest in this to create potential, the ability. We've talked about hash power markets, uh, the ability for people who have uh, the need to offset or invest ESG budgets. If there was a company which only green mined, they could sell that hash power out to those who need to offset their ESG. And I think that's the part, again, that I think is way better than somebody like me thinking, I own 0.0 or whatever percent of Bitcoin. I should mine that much uh, because I can always say no. But if there's this huge amount of budgets that are available and somebody creates a marketplace for this, uh, perhaps someone like a compass mining, one of their facilities is only a green mining facility, they could sell that hash power within the market. That feels like right. the next logical step. But yeah, that's the crazy thing is there... So that would be a very direct way to do it. If Compass or another retail mining provider said, here, you can get direct exposure to a specific ASIC that's allocated in a location that's getting purely sustainable energy, that'd be direct. But frankly, I think the idea already works in practice. If you can identify miners that are almost entirely sustainable, of which there are many, right? And I'm not going to, you know, call them out by name because I'm not going to, you know, recommend specific investments to make but basically the mechanism there is that by buying equity on the public markets for a publicly traded miner which can you know credibly say we're 85 or 95 percent sustainable whether it's hydro or nuclear or solar and wind or whatever you're reducing their cost of capital you're making their operations cheaper you're making it cheaper for them to uh, monetize their operations through uh, the sale of equity Right, that's sort of the direct causal mechanism, and so that is a way for to allow them to fundamentally outcompete other miners that wouldn't get that um, investment from the you know that sort of um, motivated investment from the public markets. So the mechanism works today. Nuclear is considered sustainable, renewable. Can I? Yeah, can I just um, step back? I I think that uh, I agree with Nick that the mechanism works today. Um, it's a little bit messy with equities <laughs> just because it can be a little bit of a side bet in the sense that yeah, you're, you're lowering cost of capital, but how much and how do you quantify that? It's a little bit more difficult than quantifying hash rate, which, you know, since we know, we know pretty well what the total hash rate is, it's very easy to calculate exactly how much hash rate you need to, to balance your ownership. Um, but it's like a stopgap measure, and I'll say I'll just say that we are. There are people working on it, on a more direct product that are talking to me, and I think it'll happen. Okay. Um, and I also want to come back to your nuclear question. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I want to specify something else. And thanks to Nick for saying this is a voluntary idea. That's right. It's a voluntary idea, and it is not wedded to any particular notion of what sustainability is. Honestly, it's a it's a formula that has as a variable an, in, an input for you to, dis, to think about what sustainability is. So if you think coal is the most sustainable form of mining, right, for whatever reason, I disagree with you. But if that's what you think and you own X percent of Bitcoin and you, you, you think that, then go ahead and mine X percent of all Bitcoin mining with coal. That's, that's your call. It's, it's up to you. This isn't something that's being forced on you. But that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense because coal's not sustainable. Yeah. But it's, he, here's the, Andrew and I wrote another paper in um, Coindesk called Mine Your Values. And the idea is, what does it mean to be a Bitcoin holder 
and how do we shape the future of the Bitcoin network? It's Bitcoin is a mechanism for us to express our values in many ways. Running a node is one of those ways you do that. Right? Yeah. What, what, what pool you join with your miner, if you mine, is one way you do that. Do you coin join? That's another way, right? There are many things we do um, as Bitcoiners to express our values. Well, mining is one of those in how you mine. So our, our overall thrust was like, do you, do you love Bitcoin? Do you want to see it go in a direction you want it to go? Like, for instance, are you going to, um, is the network going to blacklist addresses? Well, that's in part up to you, Bitcoiner. <laughs> like, you have a say in that. Um, because you have a say in the evolution of the network. It's kind of like we're not, I have a paragraph in there where I say, we're not used to being able to control uh, money. We, we're used to deferring to the high priests of money, right? They, those, for, for most of us plebs, we have nothing to do with the Fed or with, uh, with the banks. We, we don't control money, but we do control Bitcoin. Okay, mining is just one way you do that. And then if you want to know, well, how much of, how much of mining is kind of on me as a Bitcoin as a Bitcoiner? I would ask, well, how much do you hold? Same percentage. So that that general formula is 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 separate from what I think sustainability is. Do I think nuclear is sustainable? Yes, I think nuclear is great. Um, if you disagree with me, fine, then mine with something else. Yeah, but if we are talking to people who have ESG budgets to use or offset, we can't say, here you can invest in Bitcoin mining. Uh, sustainability projects, and then it's mining, which is using coal that defeats the object. Here, here's the for the ESG board, it's the same thing. What do you think is sustainable power generation? ESG board, we want a segmented hash rate market. There's, there's no like set code for this, it's all like ESG budgets and ESG investments and ESG boards, they all decide what and put that in there on their website or there's no actual central like you should be investing here i think you're going to have a harder time selling uh natural gas say maybe even flare gas mining which i think is the most sustainable form of mining but you're going to have maybe a harder time selling that to an esg board than wind or solar right because they're not going to list that as as sustainable you might have a harder time selling nuclear to that board i would like to see a segmented market in hash rate and i would like to see the market decide which hash rate sells. And I, I, I'm not I'm not on an ESG board. I'm not a sustainability guru. I just this idea is a it's a formula. And it's an it's a market idea. It's a bottom-up market idea. Let me ask you a different question. Carbon offsetting. You talked about the Winklevoss. They invested in carbon offsetting. Yeah. Okay, that's great. Um but in in the world of carbon offsetting, are there things that are considered valid projects for or valid ways to invest your money into carbon offsetting. Yes. Is there like a set set of rules or is there a set of guidelines that have kind of like developed around consensus? There are many. Yeah. <laughs> there there are there are many such rules. Um I don't think there's a single overarching yeah. one, but but yeah, I, I there are there are principles and would it be great for us to have that? Yes. I just want to separate out that idea of coming up with standards and enforcing them from the general principle, which is open on that. Yeah, but there's no like regulatory central body that decides what is and what isn't. That's fine. Okay. No. So so what we're really saying is coal is dirty, uh, 
flared gas is uh, sustainable and actually good. I think so. Positive. Uh, wind and solar, which we can get into, are considered renewables. Nuclear is debatable because they're, they're, you know, over the last week I've discovered there are environmentalists who hate nuclear and environmentalists who love nuclear. Okay, I get it. I get it. That's the reason I don't like the binary taxonomies with sustainable. I don't even talk about renewable and non-renewable. I talk about carbon intensity of energy okay. generation. That's the fundamental, right? Yeah. Because what we're interested in is the CO2 equivalent emissions, right? Well, that's what we care about here. So to me, it doesn't matter if there's like a finite amount of this resource, like uranium, I guess, is finite. So it's non-renewable, but it has a low carbon intensity. Yep. So that's what matters to me. Okay, and so with this, can we measure kind of carbon in, carbon out? Because it's not like even with solar or with wind generation that these are zero carbon inputs to create a wind farm. Uh, I think that's been covered by some of the people who are uh, nervous about these ESG or renewable projects. They say, well, we don't consider the carbon input to create the steel that creates the, the turbines. Is there is is any work been done to measure this? Yes, it's it's <clears throat> it's a mess, um, and and yeah, this is maybe something where my rhetoric and Andrew's is a little bit simplistic. When we talk about carbon neutrality or zero carbon, obviously that's doesn't exist. That doesn't exist. Um, yeah, there's a, this this notion of energy return on investment, and there's a ton of literature on. What is the energy return on investment for wind, for solar, for um, for natural gas, for nuclear, different kinds of nuclear, um, for geothermal, um, for hydro? And uh, <laughs> the ranges of estimates for that are so wide that while there are meaningful differences, uh, it, it makes me very leery of put, putting a specific number on a specific form of energy generation. I will just say I've seen a lot in the Bitcoiner community of people saying that wind farms like never pay back the energy that is required to make a turbine. I mean, that's just false. I looked, yeah. I've looked into the literature, uh, the peer reviewed literature on this, you know, it depends on where you are and how windy it is. But in West Texas, yeah, you can pay back a, a turbine in six months or a year. Um, and they last over a decade. And, you know, sol solar lasts uh, 30 years. Most solar panels that are sold now, come with a 30-year warranty. Um, yeah, the payback is a few years. It depends on how sunny the region is and the temperature and that sort of thing. It shouldn't, the work to do this shouldn't be that difficult to model it out for each uh, source of energy, the, the carbon in, carbon out, just to completely uh, debunk the arguments around this. Car you, you carbon to, intensity. You have to trace the entire supply chain, the origin of all the materials, so, of course, there is the valid point that, yes, these things, the raw materials tend to be made in China with oftentimes dirty inputs. But, uh, yeah, so, so you know, it's a question of scoping. You'd like scope one uh, emissions and scope two emissions. And so if you consider the broadest possible picture, you're always going to identify some, you know, higher carbon intensity in terms of the factors of production. I'm sure somebody out there listening to this would be capable of doing that project with funding. Oh, yeah, the work is done for sure. The work has been done or can be done? It is actively done, yeah. Okay, so we, we, we have an idea. We know. So do we know uh, the arguments coming from 
people who are nervous about uh, the arguments regarding climate change and that we should consider this against solar and wind, are, are they, is that essentially climate change FUD? I mean, I think it's valid to point out that wind and solar are intermittent and they don't provide baseload. Yep. Right. So uh, both on a seasonal basis, right, like winter, summer, uh, and then on a daily basis, you know, mm -hmm. solar obviously has more predictable patterns, wind less predictable. So, you know, is it more of a challenge to construct a grid with wind and solar as the underpinnings while we still don't have, you know, highly economical battery technology? Yeah. But, um, you know, that so that I think that's a valid point to make that it's a different model of supply, different model of generation. Uh, does it mean the wind and solar are not economical? Of course not. Like, in fact, the cost curve declines are astonishing with both wind and solar. Okay. And, and with batteries as well. And I, I mean, the point, points are related points that are made about solar and wind is, <clears throat> is that the materials aren't always recyclable. And um, yeah, that the inputs... Actually, you know, like European manufactured solar panels have half the carbon intensity of Chinese manufactured solar panels. And, um, and that sort of thing is very difficult to track. And, uh, it, it, and, it's, and it's true that a lot of solar that's manufactured now is not recycled or not recyclable. But these things are technological problems that are improving. Some turbines that are manufactured now are recyclable. Some you've seen the images of them being buried by bulldozers, and they're not recyclable. Uh, you, you know, but every part of a solar panel, in principle, could be recycled. It's a question of regulations where they're produced, um, and following best practices and improving the technology. Like it's a technology. This is the big difference, I think, between fossil fuel production and like solar and wind, it's in the cost curve is dropping like a stone. The cost curve on batteries is dropping like a stone. Well, we'll see nickel just like spiked last night to absurd levels. But because of nickel. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, it, it, you know, there are also problems with un, unethical sourcing of these, uh, of these components with human exploitation, right? That's another problem. Look, our way of life is problematic in so many respects. Our, the, the materials that we use to live come from all around the world, and we don't know how. We don't see these supply chains, right? So there's their exploitation of people, probably, just like there is for your phone. Um, does that mean? Uh, what does that mean? <laughs> well, I think you something know? like that, similar to the waste, is potential misdirection because... Um, there's a difference between waste generated by building these products, which maybe ends up in uh, landfill, but we all contribute to landfill. Um, well, majority of people. Uh, but I think it's misdirection because I think the press, more pressing issue is reducing or reducing the increase of carbon in the atmosphere. That's a more yeah, pressing issue than totally. waste. It feels like a red herring when people talk about the the wind turbines and the landfill because it's like we're not just talking about ecology here. We're talking about a specific thing, which is anthropogenic climate change mm. due to CO2 emissions, right? So what we care about is like the carbon intensity of the grid. So the question is really, is the, does the grid have more carbon intensity with you know, greater or lesser penetration of renewables? And, you know, how does the influence of new renewables change that? So I think there's valid points to be made there. 
that, for instance, when you have wind and solar, now you need more um, maybe um, thermal sources of generation to counteract the intermittency that you get from wind and solar. Like if you look at the German grid, the carbon intensity has not really declined, even though they have a higher penetration of renewables, right? So like that's a valid question, I think. But the notion of talking about wind turbine blades and landfills, that's kind of irrelevant to the much larger issue. Uh, is it Denmark that has moved towards, they've actually got to a point where they were, at one point they were 100% renewable? Do we know this? Do you want to look that up, Danny? Mm-hmm. I know they were the, kind of the pioneers of offshore wind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it, it is possible. Well, for... the problem is just that if you're heavily wind dependent, the wind can sort of stop blowing. And so you do need a reserve of some other kind of supply. It, this is uh, something that uh, solar people I've talked to make this point that as you approach um, a, a higher and higher percentage of solar and wind, the, the marginal cost to get even more solar and wind on the grid increases. So getting from 10 to 20% renewable is very economical. Getting from 70 to 80% renewable is a whole different ballgame because you're adding power at times when the grid doesn't need that power because it's already got a lot of you know solar following the same curve. That's where Bitcoin mining comes in. That's where Bitcoin mining comes in exactly. Uh, it's, it's batteries plus mining that help us... Uh, that help us achieve a much higher percent percentage of renewables than we otherwise could. Nuclear plus renewables plus batteries plus mining. That's the plan. In some drawing. Uh, Nick, you, you talked about other miners and you said you didn't want to name names. I, I, I don't think that's a bad thing, but if you don't want to, that's fine. Um, in terms of some of the ones you're aware of, uh, that they're potentially greener mining companies. Do we know if any of them have, for example, built their own wind farms or are exclusively sourcing for wind farms? Or do we know it's a percentage they're getting from the grid that we know it's a percentage uh, that is uh, from renewable? How do we know? What do we know about this? Yeah. So a, a lot of mining companies are publicly traded. There's maybe, I don't know, 30 in the US alone. And so by law, they have to disclose all the material facts about their operation. Which is really interesting, actually. That's, that was not the case like you know, two years ago. It was all these miners in China we didn't know anything about. So that's a great development. So there's a bunch of different models with mining. They're not all doing the same thing. Many of them are very focused on sustainability, not just because of, of, you know, of a capital markets thing and because being pro-ESG is going to help them with the SEC or whatever, but just because it's sort of the right thing to do and because miners have the ability to be discretionary in terms of where they secure energy from, right? They can buy energy from anywhere. So the main one I've seen is just hydro and uh, locating in areas where there was a mismatch between the supply of energy and then the demand. So places where maybe industrial production dropped off, like Quebec would be a good example, British Columbia, Washington State, upstate New York. These are places where there were big industrial uh, sources of demand for cheap energy, right? And then whatever those industries were, um, like, you know, paper pulping, aluminum smelting. Uh, There was a case of a hockey stick factory in Quebec, which is now a Bitcoin mine. Those industries left, right? Because we can't predict what the nature of demand is going to be 30 years from now, but energy gets amortized over 
you know, new energy installations, they have that kind of lifetime. So these mismatches occur, and so then you have huge sources of supply, you know, especially you know, um, upstate New York, Quebec, uh, Canada, things like that with hydro, and no demand because all the industries went to China or whatever. They just got outsourced. So that's the first one. That's very straightforward. You can achieve, you know, effectively complete, um, you know, completely uh, hydro-based energy. So, and there absolutely are miners that do that. The more complex and interesting one, I think, is where miners will co-locate with renewable energy assets like wind or solar. And these are assets oftentimes that are distressed in some way because you might have a wind farm that gets built and then on the plots of land all around that wind farm, you have three more wind farms get built. And so then you have a correlated generation where they're all trying to sell energy to the grid at the same time and there's no one there that wants to buy it. And you might have a situation like West Texas where there's transmission bottlenecks where you've got you know, 30, 35 gigawatts of load on a sunny, windy day and only 5 gigawatts of local demand and only 12 gigawatts of uh, long-term transmission to the rest of the state. So you can't even really export all the energy. So then the energy asset owners can't sell it. So at that point, that's where Bitcoin miners come in. They say, we're going to put a mine next to this wind farm, so you're not going to have to pay any transmission fees. So the energy is going to be really cheap for them. However, they can't run their operations on a solar or wind asset 100% of the time because the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. So that's when it's more complex. At that point, they will engage in grid firming. They'll pull energy from the grid to make up whatever the remaining percentage is. And at that point, they'll just get the default grid mix. So it's not you know, a story of 100% pure sustainability, right? Because if you trace the electrons, you'll be able to trace them back to some more carbon-intense sources of generation like natural gas. But what you are doing is rescuing the economics of renewables that are stranded, and you're allowing a structural overpenetration of renewables on the grid, which I think is you know, good, right? And so you'll get that in uh, Texas. That Texas is a great case study. They're piling wind and solar onto the grid right now in huge, huge amounts. Why? Well, like, what's the incentive? To transition away okay. from fossil fuels. Um, there's, there's subsidies, of course, but Texas is also incredibly suitable for both wind and solar. It's the best state in the U.S. for that. It's the number one state in terms of wind. Um, and it'll, the emergence of solar on the Texas grid is very dramatic. And they're also cheaper, too. Yeah, there's, there's a number of reasons. But so the Texas grid is really the first petri dish where we see this huge, aside from like Hawaii, for instance, in the U.S., where we see this hugely rapid transition. And it's not a surprise that Bitcoin miners are flocking to West Texas to scoop up effectively stranded renewable energy. And, and to me, that's, that's our narrative Here's the, here's the kind of big picture. Nick Carter's been fighting it out with the energy fudsters for how long? I mean, when was your first article you wrote on this stuff, Nick? I don't remember. I remember Fidelity, I wrote a memo on this in 2017. Right, you were basically like a, a child it. at that point. <laughs> I didn't know anything about this, though. I didn't know what uh, demand response was when I started out, though. We're all learning a lot about the grid, weirdly. Hmm. Um, but And Haas McCook. Too, you know, this is since like, 2014. Right. So this FUD has been ever present and weighing on Bitcoin. And I think, I think that Bitcoiners, you know, we have these slogans like Bitcoin is inevitable. 
And, um, you know, it's everything divided by 21 million or whatever. The protocol handles the supply side and keeps it limited. But the value comes from where supply and demand meet. And demand is influenced by this stuff. <laughs> and um, this is, I think, the number one thing holding Bitcoin's value down is energy FUD. And we have a narrative now, which I think a lot of Bitcoiners don't want because they're just so embittered by the years of FUD that have been launched at them. And that is this, this thing that we've pledged to do, this thing we tried to do with the Green New Deal, which is transition away from fossil fuels to renewables in order to meet climate targets and stay under two degrees. I think 1.5 ship has sailed. But you know we need to cut CO2 pretty drastically in a very small amount of time in order to meet those targets. And if you look at the IPCC report, what happens at two degrees, it's, it's, it's dicey. 3.2 it's it's, is pretty bad. Three, we, we don't even want to talk about that. <laughs> That's depressing. Let's look like, like 1.5 is already, you know, pretty bad. I, I have to say some, some of this starts for me in, in Portland where we hit 116 degrees Fahrenheit last summer and we've had drastic forest fires, the largest in the history of the state over the last three years, every summer. Let me ask you a question on that first. Yeah. Because people will say that's come down to forest management. There's an element of forest management too. I'm, I'm fortunate to work with people who study exactly this, who wrote, you know, I work with a guy who wrote his dissertation on forest fires and climate change together, right? And um, there's an element of that too. Although by forest management, I think I probably have a different idea than what they have <laughs> in mind, which is um, which is prescribed burns, um, which ironically the state doesn't allow enough of because of air quality concerns. And then we have the worst air quality in the world, like five times as bad as the worst city in China or whatever during this during these fires. But we hit 116 degrees, and that's not on forest management. That's five degrees over. What's that in British temperature? Uh, it's got to be high 30s, is it? it? It's five degrees Fahrenheit over our previous record. Oh, it's 46. Jesus. Wow. And, we, and this is this is only three hours south of Canada, near the top of the U.S., in, the, in a temperate rainforest climate, right? Of course, this is one event, and this doesn't make a case. But it's not out of the ordinary. It's the entire West Coast that's suffering historic drought. And, and this is... It's a statistical case, right? But it's in line with what the IPPC, IPCC is saying. And, uh, you know, I, I just looked up the weather. I, I went to this meeting with the, with the chairs of different departments at my college. We were looking at the 2050 plan for the college. How, where are we going to build? How are we going to develop? And um, we were like, oh, we could build on parking lots. That's one place where we don't have to worry about zoning. And one of my colleagues was like, yeah, but we need that parking lot because it's, it's nice to park there and walk to your office, it's close to your office. And I was like, we're still gonna be parking and walking to offices in 2050. What is, what is 2050 gonna look like weather-wise? I went back to my office, just typed into Google, like Portland weather 2050, what's it like? And I got different kind of estimates based on different models. One of them was like, it's gonna look like um, Sacramento. The weather's going to look like Sacramento in 2050. It's like, well, I've been to Sacramento. It looks nothing like Portland. Portland's temperate rainforest. <laughs> it's amazing, beautiful, huge trees. Then I typed it, I looked at some of the other ones. Some of the other estimates were like San Antonio. Well, I've been to the Riverwalk. 
doesn't look anything like Portland, right? I was like, oh my God. If Reed College, which is called sometimes the most progressive college in America, if their professors are not willing to make sort of lifestyle changes that are like just parking a little bit farther away and walking to their <laughs> to their office in 30 years time, like, we're not gonna, we, we can't conserve our way out of it. And we're not thinking about how dramatically things are going to be different. We're, the plant life here, it doesn't match up with, you know, it just doesn't match up with like San Antonio at all, at all. And that stuff's not even going to migrate to, to Portland. So it just, you know, back, backdrop, my own concern about this was just seeing this at my own college, kind of doing the, the math on, or not the math, just checking to see what our weather would be like in the 30 years and just thinking it through. Um, it's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit overwhelming actually to think about it. And then to sort of see, yeah, like these massive kind of weather extremes. Um, I, I, I understand like, you know, Bitcoiners aren't going to share that picture with me, but well, some, some of them will. Anyway, this is our, sorry, rant there. This is our big FUD. Uh, it's ESG FUD. Here's how we go on the offensive with it. We, Bitcoin is the solution. It's the solution. Uh, to to the uh, climate crisis. It's not the solution. It's one tool in a big toolkit. We go on the offensive with it. What's your plan for meeting our targets? How do you think we achieve renewable penetration? Are you going to do it with massive, massive subsidies? I don't see that happening, right? And um, that's a that's the narrative I think we, we need to pursue. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for this future financial world. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way for you to earn Bitcoin. There are no fees to use this card, no annual fee, and no foreign transaction fees. And you can get 3.5% back in Bitcoin on all purchases in your first three months and then 1.5% back forever after. And also, for every dollar you spend over 50000 annually, you can get 2% back in Bitcoin. Now, if you want to stack stats with BlockFi, then please head over to BlockFi.com for more information and to find out the terms and conditions. This is BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Next up, it is Compass Mining, and they are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of Compass Mining. I am mining with Compass Mining. Now, I've been doing this for about, wow, what is it, like four months now, and I've mined over half a Bitcoin with them. It's pretty cool. It's very cool, actually. I love the fact that I'm back mining, and I also love the way Compass does this. They've made mining accessible to everyone, and as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded, and now anyone can mine Bitcoin. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and they do all the rest of the work for you. Now, if you are interested in mining, or if you want to find out more, then please head over to compassmining.io. That is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Next up, it is BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry, and yes, of course, I am a BCB customer too now. Now, they heard about the difficulty I was having finding a new bank, and they understand Bitcoin. So when they reached out to me and said, Pete, you should move your account over to BCB Group, I was like, sure. Sounds absolutely perfect for me. And I could not be happier with the service they have provided me. 
Now, BCB clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are now expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now, listen, I know some of you have also had trouble with your banking. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Also today, we have Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, listen, in Bitcoin, we have this saying, right? Not your keys, not your Bitcoin. So if you're a Bitcoin holder, it is your money and it's time for you to own it. And if you're not storing your Bitcoin on a hardware wallet, then you are trusting somebody else. I took control of my Bitcoin back in 2017 when I bought my first Ledger Nano S and I'm still using that same device today. Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. Now, if you would like to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. So, still with the elephant in the room, or there's a few elephants in this room. Many. The, there are people who are considered climate alarmist or climate hysterics. That's a, a name that's been used this week by uh, Safedean and, and uh, Stefan Rivera as well. Uh, and there are, for example, in the UK, there's this group called Insulate Britain who've been gluing themselves to roads and not particularly effective and pissing <laughs> people off. Um, but there is uh, a question about whether this is a crisis. Is it a crisis now? Is it a future crisis? Uh, the models have been brought up quite regularly that none of the models work. Uh, Michael Mann, who has changed his view now, wrote an article in the 70s saying we're going into a cooling period and then there's questions over the ozone layer and then acid rain, yada, yada. What we face is a real pushback from elements within the Bitcoin community. And I, I've actually categorized them. There are people who outright deny there is uh, any human influence on climate um, and usually say climate is always changing or they bring up some model they found somewhere that says this is all natural. I, 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 uh, I think those people are insane. Um, there are the people who accept climate change, but they have a reservation around action. You know, if we reduce the burning of fossil fuels, what are the risks, risks associated with that? We have people who agree there's climate change, uh, but think it isn't extreme as Someone like Alex Epstein, he actually accepts it's happening. He just doesn't think it's as extreme as people think. There are people who are accepting it and believe it's happening and, and open to action and then the alarm is. So we've got a group of people. Uh, if I think of the spheres of uh, my cohorts I uh, or friend groups, etc., amongst my friends and family, I don't have to have a difficult conversation about climate change. We're all kind of in agreement there is an issue. Uh, because we've been told for years it is, and maybe we haven't think, thought critically or looked into the data, whatever, whatever. When I go into the Bitcoin community, it's a very challenging place to be. And I refer to Safety because he wrote a, a thread, which I, I agreed with parts on and disagree with parts on, and I wrote what I thought was a considered reply. And in a very balanced reply saying, I think here are the issues we're dealing with, here's the issues I agree with, these are the considerations, it was quite a large amount of aggressive responses back to what was, I think, a balanced uh, analysis. So 
we're dealing with a, a, certainly a group of people who have no interest in this. They think ESG is propaganda. Uh, they think it's about control and they think it's about uh, taxation. So that's a big issue to deal with. Yeah, I, I get the response that, sure, you're not trying to force anyone to do anything now, but you will. <laughs> like, no, I'm committed to liberty first and foremost. And there is a creeping authoritarianism behind a, a lot of ESG talk, and I vehemently oppose it. Um, and back to the, the science, I'm not a climate scientist. Um, I do know some, like my brother-in-law is one. He's got a PhD from Harvard in atmospheric chemistry, and he does climate science at the University of Washington, flies around in planes, gathering samples of air and analyzing them with a highly sophisticated machine. I work with Margot, who you just interviewed. Yeah, Margot's great. I mean, she's a climate scientist. I'm not going to go toe to toe with people on fighting out the thing. Here's, here's my thought, just that we're facing a lot of FUD and there are different ways to deal with it. You can say, you have to agree with me that there is no climate crisis. And then if you agree with me, then you can buy Bitcoin. Or you can say, buy Bitcoin, the climate crisis thing doesn't, that's unrelated because you can hold Bitcoin in a, in a very low carbon intensity way. And I think the latter approach is a far better approach because 75% of people think that climate change is a real serious issue. So you're just taking your total addressable market and cut it by three quarters. If you insist that people agree with you, first of all, that there is no climate crisis before they buy Bitcoin. Like that's to me just a bad market strategy. And in terms of the word crisis, it's a vague term. This is something I study as a philosopher, vagueness, right? Of course, any, any precise way of saying whether we are in a crisis or whether we are in a crisis can be disputed. It's a vague term. I mean, it is what it is. You know, look at, look at the IPCC report, think about what it would be like to have Bangladesh kind of submerged and where all those people would go or what it would be like to have a lot of, a lot of drought and floods and fires and people migrating because of that. Uh, I don't care whether we call it a crisis or not. It's just a word. I'll add one thing here, which is, you know, it's just a matter of pragmatism, actually. So um, if you accept Troy's reasoning here around um, what the, you know, mechanism is to absolve yourself of any uh, moral responsibility associated with uh, the emissions deriving from Bitcoin mining, that might be increased due to your ownership of Bitcoin, um, then you're unlocking anybody that wants a Bitcoin position but is concerned about it. And I've talked to some of the largest asset managers in the world that say, we really, really like the return characteristics of Bitcoin. We see a role for it in our portfolio, but we cannot get there in terms of uh, creating investment products around Bitcoin and getting exposure to Bitcoin directly, right? The largest pools of capital in the world, basically. And look, maybe we don't need those pools of capital, right? We're Bitcoiners, we're fiercely independent, we're sovereign. We don't need anyone to own Bitcoin, right? We're happy owning it regardless. But if you want to unlock some of these pools of capital that have enormous trepidation, um, this is a great mechanism to do it, whereby they can talk to their stakeholders and say, yeah, look, we've quantified, you know, the um, the climate impact associated with our Bitcoin ownership, 
And here's the very simple method we've you know undertaken to take steps to mitigate that, is that we've neutralized the CO2 emissions associated with our position by, you know, whatever, taking a stake in a renewable miner or mining ourselves directly in a renewable way, which crowds out the non-renewable miners. So it's just a very simple way to ease the, you know, moral uh, hangups that a lot of allocators have with getting exposure to Bitcoin. So it's ultimately a pragmatic thing. And, and it's free market. You're free not to do it. No one is forcing you to do it. You can buy hash rate or produce hash rate in whatever way you see fit, right? So it's back to the voluntary aspect again. Uh, if it were not voluntary, I could see pushback. Like pushback would be, I don't believe in climate change. You're forcing me to act as if the climate is changing. Go away. That's not what this proposal is. Okay, bye-bye. And, and the, it's, it's a good proposal objectively because it's an alternative to genuinely co coercive proposals, which 100% exist, and I can tell you efforts are underway to institute them regarding Bitcoin hash rate um, and uh, you know what kind of Bitcoins are allowed to sort of circulate. Can you expand on that, sorry? There's just a number of like initiatives underway, um, you know, from from entities that have significant power to uh, you know determine which bitcoins are and are not valid based on their provenance. But the problem is that you get then have to engage in this incredibly convoluted accounting and traceability thing, which I don't think really works. Frankly, it's like trying to trace the atoms in a bar of gold. Uh, all the way back to their source, and you know, attaching a moral uh, prohibition to a certain atom of gold because it originated, you know, in a in a mine in the Congo or something, uh, and and so so it's it's ideas like that which are, in my opinion, bad. They fragment the Bitcoin market. They reduce the fungibility of Bitcoin, um, and I don't think that you ought to be doing this moral accounting for each unit of Bitcoin. Uh, on a pragmatic basis and because it doesn't really make sense, my opinion. So I think this is why we have to encourage ideas like Troy's, which you don't rely on that uh, sort of ridiculous like moral accounting. It's, it's hard to trace back Bitcoin because when Bitcoin com comes from two addresses into one and then splits, there's no way to identify which Bitcoin came from which source. So it just there's something intrinsic about the protocol that makes the tracing difficult. But even more importantly, <clears throat> it doesn't reflect the actual production of carbon. So, you know, like I said before on the show, my Bitcoin were mined in 2011, very green. But holding it this entire time has provided an incentive to miners in an ongoing way. So there's a temporal variable that is left out of origin accounting. You know, no matter, what's weird is up front you're doing like something like 99 you're doing like 99% too much green mining up front to buy a green coin as opposed to a regular coin. But then at some point in time, you won't have done enough green mining to offset your holdings because you will have incentivized more mining over that interval um, uh, than, than your, your percentage of, of, of holdings. So it's just completely wrong accounting. It's just wrongheaded in many, many respects. And yet it's very intuitive because we are just sort of backward looking as people, we see things as like tainted 
or pure, depending on where they came from. So provenance thinking runs very deep, and it's going to be very hard to purify the mind of that. And because we think of Bitcoin as like a literal wallet with coins jangling away, and we want to attach you know, carbon intensities to each coin mm -hmm. based on how they're produced. But you should really think of Bitcoin like a quantity, like water that's flowing in between cups, right? And when I make a transaction, I'm just moving a new quantity over. We can't trace the atoms. It doesn't make sense to do it that way. But also, I just really like it because those who want to use ESG against Bitcoin, you can turn it 180 back against them and say, actually, this improves the environment. And you, so you have that. With, and the other funny thing about ESG is everyone focuses on the E and never really talks about the SNG. I know um, Pantera Capital wrote a really fascinating article that said that actually Bitcoin um, supports the E, the S, and the G. Uh, but that, that way you can like reverse it against them and use it against them, driven internally by Bitcoin companies, I think is the fascinating part of it. We've got to go on the offensive. It's so much more satisfying than trying to shoot down all the fun, which is just impossible. It's never ending. You know, Andrew and I have been talking about the meta FUD problem. And one way of putting it is that when one side of the FUD dice is facing down, another side is facing up. It seems like FUD is neither created nor destroyed. It only changes form. <laughs> Especially just, for Elizabeth Warren. It's just, it's just amazing. There's some kind of fear quantity that is conserved and it feels really good to just go on the offensive and say, Bitcoin is actually holds the key to the thing you want, the renewable transition. And you can hold Bitcoin in a way that promotes that transition by buying, buying some green hash rate or investing in a green miner. You can actually accelerate it while holding Bitcoin. And uh, so you don't have to be concerned that your, that your holdings are in some way inconsistent with or in tension with your values. They can promote your values. Holding Bitcoin can promote your green values. Uh, the conversation we had with Margot as well uh, was was great. Uh, do you know Margot? On Twitter. Yeah. Um, so she wants to uh, work on a paper looking at uh, ERCOT as a case study, how uh, Bitcoin mine is supporting the transition to renewables and uh, how it's uh, transitioning to, to, to green and how it's stabilizing the grid. So uh, I think I think we've got our finance now to go and do that. And the interesting thing about having that paper is it's, a, it's objective results that you can put in front of people who are spreading the FUD, but it's also a case study that can be taken from state to state to state. The, the ERCOT situation, is, the reason I spend so much time focusing on Texas, part of the reason I'm in Texas right now, is because Texas the grid is so unique and interesting. So it's an islanded grid, right? Which means it's not connected to the rest of America, which is deliberate because they want the ability to secede if they have to, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's there's a political reason why the grid is the way it is, which is actually maybe not that prudent, frankly, because you get better mm -hmm. stability if you can import and export energy. That would help. But they can't, so they have to be totally self-sufficient the other thing is they have great wind and solar, so they've been stacking wind and solar like you wouldn't believe. Like you're probably looking at maybe 80 gigawatts of wind and solar additions over the next, you know, three years here. What does that mean as a percentage? That's like 100 percent of the size of the generation right now in Texas. Wow. Yeah, so it's absolutely unbelievable. But there's enormous problems also. 
the main problem is that um, is negatively a zero price energy because the energy gets produced and there's nowhere to put it. Um, and so having buyers of that energy ensures that these installations can go up and stay up and monetize maybe even before they're interconnected or before transmission is built out. Um, having a flexible load, you're going to hear about this a lot, um, it ensures that the demand side can uh, turn down, they can curtail their usage at a time of grid scarcity. Now that doesn't solve a problem like the winter storm Yuri we had about a year ago here. During that storm, 50 gigawatts of power tripped offline, roughly. And it wasn't that due to the infrastructure just being outdated? Yeah, yeah it wasn't uh, sufficiently sort of weatherized. Yeah. And Bitcoin wouldn't have fixed that because Bitcoin globally is like maybe 15 gigawatts. So um, it's not big enough to for all the miners to come offline, and it's certainly not 15 gigawatts in Texas. So Bitcoin alone isn't big enough to deal with a failure that large. But for you know shorter term and smaller scale uh, failures or uh, issues with uh, generation, having a demand side flexibility is very useful, and that's why ERCOT has some of the most sophisticated programs in terms of making insurance products available for miners to sell to the grid effectively. So miners sell these products, which is basically the right for the grid operator to ask them to turn off, and the grid eagerly buys them because they have so much wind and solar, which means that you basically need to buy more insurance because you have less predictability in terms of your generation. And that's a little template that's going to be taken to all the other ISOs so New York is like learning from Texas right now. Texas is right at the forefront of this stuff. And that's going to be taken to all these other grids that have this higher and higher level of renewable penetration. And Bitcoin miners feature in that because they are the best source of flexible load because they can turn themselves down at short notice. They can stay off indefinitely. No other industrial entity can do that. If you look at other uh, industrial sources of demand response like... Uh, uh, cement factories or steel mills, they can't stay off indefinitely. They can only stay off for an hour or two at a time. They can't turn down rapidly. They can't turn back online rapidly. So they are, you know, they're doing physical processes because mining is so synthetic, it can turn itself down at a moment's notice. It can turn itself up at a moment's notice. It can be highly controllable. So it's just much more configurable than all these other legacy sources. Uh, of uh, sort of industrial curtailment. So the Texas case study is the right one to focus on because that is going to be taken out to the rest of the US and then the world at large. We um, we had Cody Wilson in here yesterday discussing 3D printed guns and uh, he's faced, faced many lawsuits and many challenges both federally but at a state level. Uh, and one of the questions I asked him was with regards to somewhere like Texas, has the state ever represented him or defended him? And we kind of got into that. Um, if there becomes some coercive attack against Bitcoin at a federal level, what, because I'm yeah, not being American, I, I don't fully understand this, what power does the, the state of Texas have to uh, reply, respond, challenge against anything that would potentially be damaging towards their own grid? Well, the states have a lot of power in America. And it's always sort of in negotiation, right? We had a whole war over that. Um, so, you know, Texas, Governor Abbott has been very 
explicitly pro Bitcoin. Uh, Senator Ted Cruz has as well. Um, there are certain things that are reserved to the federal government, you know, taxation, I guess, being one of them. But energy policy is made locally. And so unless the EPA or some sort of federal agency came in and said, you know, we're passing a blanket federal ban on Bitcoin mining, you probably see a reserve to the states. And so far it has been a states thing. You know, New York is actually weighing their own ban on Bitcoin mining. So something like that you would see happen at the state level. There's, there's some initiatives around sort of Bitcoin legalization at the state level, which I don't know if they're going to pass. But you do see a lot of policy being made. Uh, you know, for instance, in Wyoming, where there is um, the commercial code has now been incorporated to cover crypto. They obviously have their own bank charters, which is in, you know, there's a bit of a power struggle happening in terms of the bank charters at the state level versus at the federal level. So that's actually a great example. You have uh, two models. You have the federal bank charters and the state bank charters, and they're sort of butting heads over that. Um, you actually have like a proposal for a stable coin in the Wyoming uh, Congress right now. So there's a lot that can be done at the state level. The, the game theory of this is fascinating in that Bitcoin mining, which has largely been flooded, uh, might be the solution to green issues and also might become a defense against kind of federal action. Uh, it's uh, this like strange scenario where that Bitcoin has evolved into this whole other thing beyond just being peer-to-peer -peer money. It's become this beast that starts uh, supporting other industries, and it's truly fascinating to watch. Yeah, and there's one thing that's worth noting is, you know, people always talk about how Bitcoin miners are sort of like using up renewable energy that other industries would be using. You know, how, oh, they're driving up energy bills for people locally and things like that. Um, but one thing that's missed is like Bitcoin miners, the industrial firms engaging in Bitcoin mining, they're building out like energy campuses in places with stranded energy. And they're creating, um, you know, the tools for an industrial entity and infrastructure to come in and utilize it. For now, it's Bitcoin mining that they're doing. But they're not strictly just limited to that. If you look at the environmentalist literature, there's a huge amount of focus on hydrogen electrolysis, which is the production of hydrogen, which would then be used as a fuel, which would be a clean fuel. And that's um, believed to be an incredibly important sort of like component of the green transition. That would be something you could do. You could repurpose a Bitcoin mine. You could do that at a Bitcoin mine as well. So, you know, you could do other forms of computing potentially too. I think the world's going to have a structurally much, much higher demand for more computing in the future. It's only growing. So it's not like Bitcoin mining is the only thing that can happen at these data centers. There is a repurposability there. And these are American firms that are building up a high energy infrastructure, utilizing the best and cheapest sources of energy. So I don't see how that's something to be ashamed of. It's something that is moving us towards this, you know, recreating industrial centers of load in the U.S., that can be used for high energy industries of which Bitcoin mining is just the first. Yeah, I, I think that one of the paradoxes I see very, very smart people get hung up on is how can we add demand? How can we add electrical demand? And by adding demand, create a more sustainable energy infrastructure. Like a lot of smart people cannot get past that. And um, <clears throat> some of it is point that Nick makes all the time. Um, which is that 
Bitcoin mining is is a non-rival consumer of energy. It's not like it, it, energy is in a way not fungible. I mean, it's fungible in that electrons are fungible, but it's not at all. It's, it's like it's fungible within like a hundred miles, <laughs> exactly. unless and, you have high, high voltage transmission and uh, and time. It's it's time and space dependent in the extreme. People don't understand. You can't store power. I mean, you can with they're called batteries, but batteries are kind of inefficient. There's transmission losses going into them. They're very expensive. Uh, so so it, it's it's anti-fungible in a way. And Bitcoin, uh, I think last time I uh, used this metaphor of the dung beetle, right? Going into these price crevices and like literally eating refuse, <laughs> like eating waste um, that would otherwise not be monetized. And then that, that consumption uh, financing more power production. As long as the the as long as they're financing more power production than they're using, and they're and they're financing power that's produced generally, whereas they're using waste energy, um, that's how you solve the the paradox of how can you add demand and yet end up with a greener and uh, a, a greener grid that's actually more efficient and um, produces less carbon, right? Um, yeah, I, I find people just stumble on that constantly, even even analysts. And part of the solution is it may be that we get a migratory pattern of miners. So the way I see this is like uh, finding stranded energy. Um, miners go there because they don't need to be grid connected to monetize that energy. So you get like a, a forward team of miners out on the frontier of energy development. And then once other consumer, once your grid connected and other consumers can come in, then there's less of an advantage for those miners. So they move to the next front. Some miners stay behind because still it's an interruptible load. It's still attenuable. It's still a, it's still the best source of flexible, flexible load. But it's it's advantage over other forms of power consumption is less. So I I, I think people are also missing this dynamic of how you you, you know once your grid connected you're going to drop the number of miners you have because now you have grid demand and you might have other forms of demand that are less flexible that you can support. Right? And one thing people overlook is the importance of transmission because there's a lot of generation, but a huge component of the cost of energy in this country is transmission and distribution, as in big old transmission, high voltage, and then the you know smaller neighborhood wires, right? That's a huge part of your energy bill. People don't realize that. They think it's all about generation. No, it's also about getting it to the consumer. The, the transmission is a bottleneck much of the time. That's why we can't deliver certain, uh, you know, like stranded pools of energy to the end user. Texas being a great, great example, right? It's a huge bottleneck here. All the transmission is accounted for. So the miners can come in, occupy and monetize the asset while the transmission has yet to be built. And then as Troy says, once the expensive high voltage transmission lines are finally built and these high energy pockets are connected to the remainder of the grid, then maybe the miners move on. Does this solve any issue with regards to uh, demand for resources internationally? Does it make, uh, say, if we just use the US as an example, less reliant upon sourcing energy on the international market? I think so. I think being sovereign from an energy perspective is one of the best things this country can be. And uh, that, that's a, a matter of political importance now, obviously, 
the fact that Germany isn't doing much against Russia, the fact that they're not, um, you know, joining the U.S. in in the total package of the sanctions is because they have to buy energy from them. The U.S. used to be fully sovereign from an energy perspective. We used to produce far more than we needed. That's not the case today, and that's why we have to go hat in hand ask Venezuela and the Saudis to help us lower the cost of oil here. But we can produce all of all of the energy we need here domestically. Uh, if we can improve the dynamics and the efficiency of our grid with more flexible load and onshore more renewable structurally, that completely helps with our energy independence. And we never want to be beholden to any of these like hostile foreign countries that don't share our values. And electrifying through vehicles and yeah. the structure of a, uh, how you heat a home or provide power for cooking. Yeah, something that Bitcoiners say a lot and I completely agree with is that the way forward is through energy abundance, not energy scarcity. The way we make this transition is by building out tremendous amounts of new power production, not, um, not even something I've favored in the past, which is carbon taxes. When I, when I look at the impact of carbon taxes, first of all, on mining, it's not very effective because miners can just, if the, if the tax is too much, the miners will just move elsewhere. The hash rate will just move elsewhere. It's almost a perfect case study of escape from carbon taxes. But also, it's not a fast enough transition, actually. Looking at um, Saul Griffith's book, he maps out like the effects of carbon taxes. It doesn't transition to renewables fast enough. Um, whereas I think if we focus on building, we can, we can get there in time to stay below two degrees. Um, we can we can meet those. If Griffith mass out ad adoption of other technologies. Look at the curve of the adoption of cell phones, the adoption of the internet, and so on. That's the kind of curve we need to be on. We're not going to get there through curtailing or cutting off fossil fuel production. It, it, it's not going to generate the incentive we need to build out electricity fast enough. And in fact, it's going to kind of choke the economy meantime and punish people who are living on the margins. And so this is a Bitcoiner point that I completely agree with, but I go in a different direction with it. It's like, yes, do we need an energy abundant future? Yes. Will Bitcoin help us get there? Yes. But it'll do so probably through renewables, simply because their cost curve is so extreme. <laughs> and it, it's just not politically tractable to input because the degrowth contingent wants energy prices to be high. They, they want thermal energy prices to be high. But that's what we have right now. I don't know if you guys filled up on gas oh recently, God. but it's... You know, $5, I think, here, maybe a little cheaper in Texas. In California, it's $5 going towards $6. We're £1.55 a litre in the UK. I don't know what I that... think it's even higher than that now. I think it's like one eighty. What does that work out as I a I don't gallon? even want to think about that in dollars, but it's it, Americans would be scandalized do, by that. Do, do a like-for-like like comparison. So the thing is with gas is it has the same effect as interest rates. When, when gas gets high in dollar terms, it um, is like hiking interest rates and it retards economic activity. And in fact, historically, there's a high correlation between gas going over $150 and us going to a recession. So it's like over $8 a gallon. Yeah. That's insane. So that's the over, problem. Over, sorry, going to recession at what price? Over? 150 so $150 a barrel? Barrel, yeah. So What are we at now? 130 $30, 35 is it? I'm sure we're going to keep climbing. But I saw predictions yesterday that we could go anything from two to 300 depending on <sighs> response 
on the international yeah. market. So the thing is, is that it's just politically not tractable to impose structurally high energy prices because it will hurt society and, and especially the poor and the working class. So gas, we call it petrol. Um, it's, I think it's strange to call it gas because it's, it's, it's not gas. It's not yeah, a gas. It's, it's one of those weird American things. Um, it's used obviously in cars. It's used in airplanes. It's used to power the grid. Yeah, in some cases. But we can get it down probably just to mainly airplanes. I can't see us having an electric 777s just yet. Well, and you know, the interesting thing is the U.S. grid has actually declined precipitously in carbon intensity over the last decade. The reason we did that was because we replaced one source of thermal generation with another. It was because we got rid of a lot of the coal and because we started using natural gas more, which is half the carbon intensity of coal. I think we also looked up yesterday, there's only, what, 53 years of oil left. <laughs> we got to do it anyway. I, I have to register skepticism about that. Just having lived through peak oil, right. it's like, who knows? I'm not going to go, yeah. I'm not going to die on that hill because <laughs> I I saw many experts the thing predict is, it. But the energy return on investment, actually, for oil has gone way, way down. You know, er, early in the century, I think it was like, 75 to 1, 80 to 1. Now we're down to 5 to 1. Because it's it's more work to extract, to extract oil. oil. Right? Yeah. That's something else that has to be, if you're going to do that calculation, that difficult calculation that you were suggesting we do, and I think rightly so, of r really looking at the total carbon intensity of each form of energy production, the carbon intensity of, of uh, oil and natural gas is going up. You know, tar sands, that's pretty Yeah, we're getting really into intensive. the worst the least economical sources. The Arctic, Antarctic. Is that where Russia wants to mine? To dig for oil. Um, but, that, but that's an interesting point. If we can reduce the demand because we have a electric vehicle base, if we don't need it for the grid, I've really struggled to see anything beyond, uh, even with the transition of homes to be electrified in terms of cooking and heating. I was trying to look through what are the things where I don't see... We move away, and I just, I just planes. don't see. Yeah, planes. Well, you know, it's interesting. There are electric planes, and yeah. they're doing better and better. And it all depends on battery technology. Honestly, do batteries get lighter and um, store more energy? We we can do short haul flights, not transatlantic, you know. But but those are short haul flights. What for three people or short haul no, flights for commercial really? airlines? This is this is this is Griffith's estimate that he thinks that that part of the that part is solvable. It all depends on the, it all depends on the tech. It all depends on battery tech, really. An electric seven three seven max. <laughs> the problem is, is that there's a billion or so people that live unelectrified lives, yeah. completely, and so their source of energy is, um, is biomass, right? Wood, mm -hmm. right, for cooking fires, and it's gasoline in vehicles and generators, and so. We can't neglect the fact that there is a huge contingent of the world that lives an unelectrified life entirely. They're still going to be dependent on uh, hydrocarbons. And we are too for a long time because so much of our infrastructure is built around it. And you can see it in the price. Uh, you can see it in the price, right? The market um, reflects the reality, not these climate targets. <laughs> if the climate targets were real, we would have much more expensive offsets and we would have much cheaper uh, we would, you know, fossil fuel companies would be much cheaper. So the market's telling us we're in for a, we're in for a fossil fuel future, 
And you know, if you look at if you look at renewable penetration, so we've like doubled over the past whatever decade. But the total energy consumed has also gone up. And so that even if that curve uh, gets dramatically steeper, we still have a long fossil fuel future ahead of us. And I think we just have to reconcile ourselves to that. And burning biomass, burn, burning, you know, cooking over coal, we, we have to be very careful here. This is these people's lives and there's no better alternative for them. And uh, I think that being concerned about climate can can never get in the way of actual people meeting their day-to-day -day needs. And in fact, I think the electrification story is a leapfrogging story in technology, right? I think what will happen is you'll have people who skip over the entire sort of natural gas stage of our evolution, jump straight to solar uh, because solar will be cheap and efficient. And you'll go from like burning with like, like cooking over wood to cooking with solar. Yeah, but there is a flip side to that as well. Um, one of the arguments I've seen against uh, the reduction in burning fossil fuels is that uh, even if there are changes in the climate, we can mitigate that because we can invest in flood defenses and you know, change the way we build homes and things like that. But one of the things that was never answered that, and I just one case study alone is if you uh, look at Ethiopian coffee production, it's 5% of their economy, employs 15 million people, um, they've been suffering a changing situation with droughts and rainfall since the 70s. There's a chance they lose because they have to basically move up to Alt higher lands. Altitude. Yeah. yeah. So there's a cost to move. They could lose anything. I think it's 30 to 50 percent of coffee production in Ethiopia over the next you know, whatever time period. Are the most well resourced. So the biggest consumers of uh, of non renewable power sources are also the ones who are most economically advantaged to mitigate the the outcome um but it's a global planet like we're in, we're in a global society and the things we do here affect other people around the world all the reports say whether you believe or not all the reports say that the countries who are going to suffer mostly from climate change are the poorest countries but these are the same people who don't like centralization so are they voluntarily gonna go and support these economies and i think that's an important part of the, the discussion that's often missed well, there's a tricky element here because the key to industrialization becoming wealthy is, um, well, it's industrialization, right? Mm. And so that's how you become like a wealthy society is, is you, be, you know, become able to efficiently use energy at scale and, you know, use that to create modern factors of production and so on. But that involves in its current model, the current model of industrialization involves consuming a lot of hydrocarbons. And so you get this weird thing where, like if you look at the what was it the COP two, with the climate discussions they had in Glasgow. COP twenty six was it? I don't even know what it stands for, but the big point of contention was around India's commitment to mm -hmm, climate mm -hmm, targets, mm -hmm. right? And there was a lot of gnashing of teeth because India didn't want to commit aggressively, because they felt you know the West got theirs, they industrialized from you know the seventeen hundreds to today, and you know achieved this high standard of living, and they have air conditioning and you know all those nice things. And then India figured, well, we kind of deserve that too. Um, and so they didn't want to handicap themselves by committing to a lower level of emissions. And so that's sort of where it gets really tricky is because you get Western countries going to the global south and saying, we don't want you to industrialize. You, you can't, you know, you're not allowed. We've, we've already emitted all the carbon 
And uh, that's enough for all of us, you know. And, and there isn't an easy solution, right? This is why, this is what gets the authoritarians going. Because they're like, um, you know, the, this is the mother of all externalities, carbon emissions. It affects people in a kind of diffuse and unpredictable, random way around the world. But it's locally produced. There's no easy way to price it in. You could do it with a tax, but... Like I already suggested, people will just flee elsewhere. Um, it seems to call for some kind of worldwide authoritarian effort. And that's a non-starter for me. Um, so what's what do we do? Well, the only thing I can think of is just outside of the government mechanism entirely, and it's to build. It's to build and create the possibility for industrialization that's not fossil fuel dependent. Change the incentives. Change the incentives and offer a path to, you know, to first world wealth and lifestyle that is sustainable, like a, a sustainable way of living the way we do. That requires abundant energy. Um, and it, it requires a lot of things, but it requires a lot of, a, most of all, a lot of uh, energy that's not high in carbon intensity. Okay, so so what now? Like we second conversation on this, we can keep having it, but like we kind of want action now. I distributed the last uh, interview we did out to a bunch of prominent Bitcoiners. Um, what now? How do we create some momentum behind this? I can tell you, I think Troy should quit his job and actually pursue this. Is that a, is that a potential? Is that a job offer? <laughs> I, um, I, I want to take next year off. Okay. Um, take an unpaid leave next year. I am contractually obligated and I have students, I have a stack of papers over there in my backpack that I have to grade. <laughs> I'm, I'm really strung out right now between these, two, between these two lives because my heart is 100% in this effort. It's the most exciting thing. You know, it's the most exciting idea I've ever had. And I want to make it a reality. And like I am talking to people who've reached out to me uh, and I won't say anything in detail but like we're working on it okay we're working well, on it well it sounds like you've made the decision so that's cool yeah i haven't i haven't uh got a, a sponsor yet for next year but i'm finding i'm figuring it out well we can talk about that we we got margot a sponsor to do her paper i mean i don't think it'll be particularly hard but i won't embarrass you and ask you about numbers uh, on the show but we can talk about that afterwards um but i think that's a great suggestion nick Sure. Do you uh, do do your students get whiplash from like you teaching them about epistemology one day, and then you're a celebrity, you know, on the Bitcoin circuit the next day? You know, it's a funny. Um, it's funny because I. It's been this way from the beginning when I was in Bitcoin. Like, there's a, a student of mine from a, you know 2013 who sent me a, recently a post of his back in on Facebook that was like Troy Cross won't shut up about Bitcoin. <laughs> like 2013. <laughs> He posted recently. It was like, oh, I wish I'd listened to him, right? And check out his socks. Um, it, yeah, it's a different. They're two different worlds, um, but I love the college I'm teaching at. I love teaching, and in some ways, it's seamlessly connected, right? This idea is just a. It's a philosophical idea that was kind of overlooked, and it was a great moment of joy in discovering it. It was a great moment to share it uh, with you and with Nick. I mean, when when um, Andrew and I kind of working it out. Our first thought was like, well, Nick Carter is going to get this. And when Nick gets it, the light bulb's going to come on and that's going to be an amazing moment. We both sort of just fantasized about that. I can't believe that that fantasy actually happened. And I can't believe that you've allowed me to share it with 
the broader world and it's happened for a lot of people right and now it's execution time well nick is on the decentralized board of guest selection for what bitcoin did so if nick <laughs> says speak to somebody i speak to them he has that much power well um, i appreciate it i uh, i can't confirm or deny whether i take bribes in order to place people on the show it doesn't take bribes um are you speaking at miami i have been invited to but i'm not sure in what capacity but i will be there well, I think that would be a good place to talk about this. I completely agree with Nick's suggestion. Is is there anything else we should, could be doing? I, both of you now. Mine would be to encourage the uh, Bitcoin miners that are, you know, accessible and transparent to A, pursue renewable sources and B, to be more transparent and clear about it. There's a lot of confusion still because I still think that's the most easy way to execute on this plan is just buy a stake in a renewable miner. You know, maybe that's not the most direct and perfect way to to carry out the objective, but it's pretty good. Um, and the miners are not that clear in terms of where the energy is coming from, uh, what the carbon intensity is, whether they're using RECs, whether they're using offsets. Um, you know, whether they're double counting. There's some like tricky stuff around that. Um, and uh, there are you know good initiatives there. I. Personally, you know, I like the Bitcoin Mining Council. I think they do a good job, but I'd like to see more there just in terms of transparency. And also, like, there's miners that are using some pretty nasty stuff, like some of the worst power plants in North America uh, are being used for Bitcoin mining, some of the dirtiest. Should we shame them? Is it uh, Kentucky? Um, there's one in Montana, which is pretty bad. Okay, but the that's the herd plant? Harden. Harden, yes. Yeah. Like the marathon one. Yes. So like, you know, it's not all good. There's like miners that are still kind of like taking advantage, I think, or like free riding in a certain way. And they're just kind of not really acknowledging that they are, um, you know, casting this like significant issue that all Bitcoiners have to deal with. And the miners, you, you know, earn an income and, you know, return. And the externality of that is partly that the Bitcoin community is disempowered. Hmm. So they, in my opinion, they do have a bit of an obligation to render their operations as sustainable as possible because it is so tractable. Like it is genuinely quite possible to do that, to go after these renewable sources and find them and use them. I, I think uh, Nick is in the same position I am when we see again and again and again articles from The Guardian, The New York Times, these these institutions shape the way people think about Bitcoin. And just a few plants, uh, just a few stories. How many times, Nick, have you read about Greenwich? Now, the story there is more complicated. Stronghold, the story is more that's complicated. That's a crazy thing. I would argue that those are, those both, are both inverse. I know. I know. In terms of like, I, I actually really support both of those. Both of those, plans. I know. What are those? Explain what those are. Well, go ahead, Nick. This is your thing. So the Greenage is the one in upstate New York where you've probably heard about. They're like boiling all the, you know, trout in the lake. <laughs> so it was a coal <laughs> plant. It that. got converted to natural gas and it runs, it mines Bitcoin partly and then also distributes energy to the grid as needed. They're fully compliant with the EPA standards in terms of uh, the hot water effluent going back into the lake. But the coverage has been like hysterical, genuinely about you know boiling the lake or whatever. And then the stronghold one is fascinating. It's these uh, these guys in Pennsylvania. They're using coal waste, which has accumulated over hundred years of coal mining, and it just poisons the 
the ground in Pennsylvania and it sits there unmitigated and they developed a technology or they use a the technology to you know, create energy with the coal waste and combust it in sort of an emissions controlled manner. So it's much better than the alternative of these waste piles sitting in Pennsylvania on fire in some cases, oxidizing, doing emissions anyway, leaching all kinds of horrible stuff into the soil and poisoning people. Is that, is that the thing that gets into the aquifers? Yeah. And so you see the coverage and including the House memo, the House had their committee hearing and they wrote the memo. They called out Greenwich and they called out Stronghold. The real story is very different in both cases. We're In some ways, we're really blessed with how bad the FUD is and how detached it is from reality. Because, yeah, there are places you could focus to ge generate legit-ish FUD. Um, but people focus on Stronghold, which the story is, uh, yeah, Nick, Nick did a po podcast with those folks and it was mind-blowing. It's actually an amazing story. Is that the place you said story. I should go and visit? Yeah, I think you should yeah. go to, go look at it's, the the piles of waste coal in Pennsylvania. I mean, what's the waste from the waste? <laughs> what do you mean? Well, you said it's using coal waste, but like, does this produce a different waste once they've... Um, no, I mean, you combust it and then it's energy and, and you know, ver various gases. So like okay. the waste is effectively mitigated once you put it into the furnace. Okay. It produces CO2. That's its it's waste, yeah. but it's weird that I I listened to this podcast and Margot and I looked into it, Margot especially, and there just isn't a better way to deal with um, over two hundred years of of coal waste that actually built the world. I mean, it didn't just the skyscrapers in New York, you know, like and in Korea, yeah. in Seoul, right? It, this is this is the steel that that was used to fight World War II to make our navy and our air force, right? It, this is an it's just an incredible story of what you see, like sort of the long tail of American industrialization and, and the people who are left with cleaning up. It's the story of these communities and class warfare, you know, it's kind of the worst stereotype of distant eco-liberals like judging what's going on in a region of the world they don't understand or have any sympathies for. It's in flyover country. And then people actually living with the consequences of this world that we've built and Bitcoin playing a surprising role in its cleanup. Absolutely surprising. You know, that's that's one of the FUD pieces that actually flips. And and Alex DeVries, Digiconomist generally, is just so sloppy <laughs> that, he, that he discredits the movement, right? And then when we do have cases of some of the dirtiest burning uh, sources of energy, yeah, it, it's a fly in the ointment there because we're we're on the verge of flipping this narrative very, very powerfully because they've set us up for it. And and frankly, if you if you look at the data or you consider the Bitcoin Mining Council reliable, it's quite likely that Bitcoin mining is a more sustainable industry than maybe virtually any Anything other else. any other heavy industry that exists. And that's even before considering the benefits of a flexible load, which can help decarbonize the grid. So. And, and that'll become clear, like maybe the Biden executive order, they'll commission a study. I think they'll probably do a pretty good job if they do. And they'll get to the bottom of it too. Like you just look at through the public filings. You look at where the miners are based. You look at the IPs. I think what you'll find is that it's a cleaner industry than like cement production, than aluminum production, than paper and pulp and, you know, all these industrial sources, which are not interruptible. They're not location agnostic. They have to be in certain geographic areas. So I think that's what you'll find is just that the critics aren't really interested in like finding out what's true or not. Typical. 
Um, okay. Brilliant. Well, Troy, we'll get this out. Nick, we'll get this out. We'll do everything to support you. Um, we should continue the conversation about what happens next and uh, any way I can support you. Uh, just consider it done. Um, do you want to point people to, like I say, if you haven't listened to the previous show you should, and you've just listened to this, please go back and listen to it. Danny, what episode was that? I'll find out. Yeah. Um, anything you want us to point people to? No, you can you can follow me at um, at the Trocro on Twitter. Um, you can follow spelled up. It's T H E T R O C R O. Okay. And um, his Troy Cross not available. You know, this was a nickname that students gave me like two and a half decades ago, and I just when I signed up for Twitter, I don't know, eight years ago or something, I didn't plan on ever tweeting anything. <laughs> and I didn't until recently. So I just used the same old thing that I set up. I, I, I don't even know if it was available. As a branding and marketing, marketing guide and knowing how poor Twitter search is, it might be, it might be wise. Wanna, it might be wise to go to at Troy Cross if it's available. Yeah, that episode was 463. And what a, we don't know what episode this will be. But yeah, episode 463, go and listen to that. Um, Nick, anything you want to point people to to look at? Your know? essay is at resistance.money. Is that where it's saved? Yes, resistance.money slash green is where the, the yeah. white paper is. And we hope to write, I mean, I'm busy with my fiat mining job and so is Andrew. We hope to write some more papers, you know, fleshing out the idea because the, the white paper is pretty bare bones. Yeah, so I would go there. I like that there's so many philosophers that are, you know, writing stuff about Bitcoin now. Um, you know, there's others that are really great. Um, Andrew Bailey, Bradley Rutter, Craig Warmke, Craig Warmke, of course, who who wrote some amazing papers on Bitcoin. Did he? Did you ever have Craig on your show? No, I don't even know him. <coughs> this, know, I know essay, Bradley, and I know and you've mentioned Andrew. This essay, Bitcoin Behind the Veil, that's is, a great one. Is, is excellent. I think I've read it though. He also wrote Electronic Coins. I think that's one of my favorites. Sounds like someone we need to talk to. Where yeah. is he? Where is he based? Do we know? Um, He's in um, he's in DeKalb, Illinois, outside Chicago. So okay. I, you know, that'd be my advice. Would be look at the. I don't know if Troy's. Are you part of the sort of collective there? I'm like a, I'm so like like adjacent. A, uh, okay. They're writing a book with Rutledge right now um, on the philosophy philosophy of Bitcoin. It's really like kind of a PPE book, uh, philosophy, politics, economics. It's just kind of raising all of the philosophical issues surrounding uh, Bitcoin, and I think that's going to be like a reference work going forward well there is this new cohort building up yourself andrew margot matthew pines uh david zell like it's a yeah. it's a new area of interest in thought um which is good because a lot, we've had a lot of very similar conversations for the last couple of years and and for us it's fascinating to prep and talk to new people and yeah I have help to elevate them have to plug the bitcoin policy institute yeah. and the folks there mm -hmm. um all the philosophers mentioned are a part of it but um some yeah. other great people as well, like uh, like William Luther, and um, and yeah, Margot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and uh, it's incredible to see like you know serious economists like Will Luther coming in, uh, Larry White as well. Um, even George Seljan sure. is like almost you know friendly towards Bitcoin now. Can I tell you an interesting David Zell story because we had him on the other day. Was it seventh grade? Seventh grade. You know, we usually ask people, how do you discover Bitcoin? He said, I was introduced in seventh grade. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That makes it even, even you feel old. Yeah, you feel old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I've, I felt super old. So, okay. Well, listen, look, this is great. Appreciate you both uh, flying in for this, uh, especially you, Nick, as you've 
uh, been bitching about it since you got here. And uh, yeah, listen, we will do everything to promote and uh, move this forward. And I'm sure we're going to talk again. I know we will always talk again, but I'm sure we'll talk again. Um, but yeah, good luck with this and let's see where we can take this. Thank you, Peter. Thanks. All right. Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing you can do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com.